£20 for 5 and £35 for 10 Right, OK. Um, just a quick uh, plug. Uh, John Groves' very uh, helpful book, Foundations, has just been reprinted. Uh, last word have just done that, who um, have done some of the other books that we're uh, using. So these are you know, good for follow-up, post-alpha, discipleship, that kind of stuff. Um, five pounds for one, 20 pounds for five, 35 pounds for 10. There we go, we got it. <laughs> Do quite well. So uh, if you want those, you can order them either contacting uh, through Jeff and he'll put you in touch with the order place or you can do it through James. Um, but it's a really good, really good set of materials for discipling kind of post-alpha, kind of that sort of thing. So... Um, I'll leave that on there. So you can have a flick through that if you want. Okay, in this last session, uh, much more straightforward because it's me, all right? So, <laughs> so <laughs> no, more, no more Greek. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to, sort of flipping it completely uh, from theology more to sort of just uh, an apostolic kind of um, uh, flavor a little bit. So I'm just going to, look at this subject of lessons I think we can learn from Jesus' discipleship of the three, the twelve and the seventy-two because I think there are some things to perhaps help us with in terms of as, as we go forward what kind of dynamics do we want to create because I think the dynamic, the feel of something is, is as important as kind of what you're trying to do, you know, so it's the way we do things. So, so this is not so much a session about kind of what we believe about things, but more how we do stuff. So in some ways it's a little bit like I was doing yesterday, but this is a bit more in terms of practical implementation of mission rather than the conceptual thing of generational passing on to others. So I'll just try and give it a few thoughts. I've just been reflecting on this a little bit and... I suppose because of the stage we're at, where we're still in early days trying to work out how we do this, what does it feel like, what are we looking for, what does success look like? Um, these are sort of kind of some of the concrete I'm just trying to pour in, okay, let that set so that we, we kind of feel um, we know what we're trying to achieve. Uh, and I think Jesus can clearly teach us a lot about how to prepare people for a movement because of what he was doing. You know, how, how could he was trying to prepare people to, to, for movement, not for organisation. So it's a, it's a little bit sort of some reflections for us. So I'll just pray and then uh, ask the Lord just to help us in this last little bit. I know it's been a demanding day, lots of brain power required, but hopefully this will be a little bit more, um, won't require quite so much brain power, and then <laughs> we'll see where we go. So Father, just help us in this last session. We do pray that you would help us to grasp some stuff in this that will um, prepare us for all that lies ahead. We want to have a feel about the way we do things that we recognize, that we feel comfortable with, that we feel is accessible to us. So I pray that as we just look through these things, help me just to pick out principles and, uh, and encourage us uh, and, and perhaps just nudge us in certain directions that help us, Lord, as we, as we embark on big journeys ahead, Lord. We, wanna, we want to 
last the course well. We want to be able to set our course clearly. We want to be able to know what things matter and what things are not so important. So just help us just as we, we look at this stuff together, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just put a few headings, really, of just some observations about the way Jesus discipled the three, the twelve, and the seventy-two. Now, even by saying that three, twelve, seventy-two, it's uh, just by way of observation that he seemed to have a different depth and a different sort of way of relating to different groups of people in order to uh, for certain to get certain tasks and jobs and and training done. So um, uh, that's just the first thing to observe. I'm not particularly going to start with one scripture. I'll just kind of look at some general things and refer to one or two scriptures in particular. The first thing to say about Jesus and his disciples was. It was Jesus that called them to be together. Jesus called them to be together. Now, for, for us, a question might be, uh, why are we doing this? Why, why does relational mission exist? That is actually a very important question. What, what is the point of this? What is the point of um, giving ourselves a name, setting ourselves a, a vision and going for it? What is the point? What are... Even more, you could ask the question, what are our distinctives? You know, what is it that we're saying we are? What are we trying to do? What do we believe in? What are our distinctives? There are, there, are, there are lots of good churches now, lots of good streams, lots of good, um, you know, life coming in old denominations. There's all sorts of good stuff going on. So you think, well, what are our distinctives? What's the point of what we're doing? Um, well, I mean, again, you know, I just Andrew's been controversial theologically. I'll be controversial in terms of what I think about some of this. I don't think that forming yourselves around distinctives is helpful, um, because if we say if we set up distinctives and say, well, we are like this, but other people perhaps are like that, then to me the goal of Ephesians chapter four, the goal of the ultimate goal of, of apostolic ministry, the ultimate goal of Ephesians chapter four is that the whole church reaches unity and maturity. Right, so the ultimate goal is that every church, all of the church universal, grows in maturity and unity. Now that to me means that the observance of distinctives becomes less and less as that process takes place. You with me? And to actually set yourself up as a distinctive and say, well, we stand for this, puts a marker in the sand that almost prevents you from the journey forward into maturity and unity. It's almost like saying, well, we've, we've, got, we've cornered this bit of it, and well, they believe in that bit, but we and they believe in that bit, and they practice this bit. But this is our bit. I think that's totally countercultural to apostolic heart. I think apostolic ministry doesn't defend a corner. Apostolic ministry wants unity and maturity across the whole church, all of the church, the whole thing. That's the heart of an apostolic movement. So distinctives in terms of well, we believe this, we believe that. I don't think they are the primary reason why we exist. No, you've got to think about this, because I'm saying that's quite a radical thing to say, because particularly when many of us 
got involved in New Frontiers and whatever you say 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, we were coming out from something that was very unbiblical and trying to create biblical structures. So we put markers in the sand to say, well, no, there is some stuff here that we've got to stand for. But that is very much, to my mind, a marker on the journey. It's the recovery. It's the, the old restoring the church. It's, 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 it's the desire for unity and maturity across the whole church rather than saying we, we just want one bit of it to look like that. It's the heart behind it that's got to be captured. Now, to my way of thinking, the fact that many, many churches now uh, you can walk into and... and it's healthy church life that to me is great yeah wonderful and to me success looks like that the more churches you walk into in the coming years is increasingly difficult to tell the difference because more and more looks united and mature doesn't mean there's a common agenda of program it just means there's a common heart and a common maturity and a common unity in the body of Christ that to me is what Jesus is longing for working for and waiting for so therefore, that needs to be our heart as well. To me, that's the whole point of Ephesians chapter 4, that on that great day, Jesus will return for his church a bride without spot, wrinkle, blemish, a bride that's presented mature and united for him to return to. Not a lot of loads of distinctives. It's not the point. It's a journey. Now, and I th So the question then is if you think, well, okay, well, if, if what you're saying is the case, well, are you saying that it doesn't matter what we believe? No, 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 I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that gathering around what we could call the main and the plain is important. There are, there are gospel issues that Paul held dearly. There were things he taught in his churches, there were practices, and all of that, but there were gospel things that were main and plain that he held dearly. And... I think his heart would have been, and I think our heart must be, that we would love to see all churches stick to the main and the plain and have beautiful doctrine, wonderful understanding of the plan and purposes of God and just be increasingly growing in those things. That, that, that to me is, that, of course it matters what we believe, but the question there has to be, well, why are we doing what we're doing? And to me, this is more about prophetic destiny rather than distinctives around practice and belief. It's about the fact that God, I believe, calls people together. In Acts it talks about different times and places, God apportions where people live, where they live, at the times they live. And all Each of us is alive now because God has ordained that to be the case. Each of us, I believe, is in this room working together, being having our, uh, providentially seeing our lives inter interweave together because God has a purpose for us as individuals. It's more to do with a prophetic destiny than it is to do with an arbitrary set of people around a set of distinctives. It is, is a destiny that God has called us individually and corporately to achieve. So I think when Jesus picked his disciples, it wasn't they interviewed them to see what their core beliefs were. He, he, he picked people who he, he wanted them to be with him on a particular mission at a particular time in a particular place. And I would say that's, that's how we should view apostolic ministry. It's more to do with the fact that we stand in a moment of time, we have our part to play in helping bring the church, as far as we are concerned, into increased maturity and unity. And if we can be a blessing beyond our own borders, 
great, but as far as we're responsible for the things we're doing, we want to do our thing to help churches become mature and united. They had a prophetic destiny. It was Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth. It was a destiny. It was glued together by love. They knew Jesus loved them. He called them to be with them. It was not so much he called them to do things. He called them to be with him. He wanted them to be with him. So even the way he called them, Nathaniel, he said, I saw you sitting under a tree. There is a, there's a personal thing. There's an intimate thing. There's a, there's a sense of God apprehending Nathaniel because he loved him, not because he thought he would make a good rounded team because he was a kind of a compliment to one of the other guys who had a different personality. There's something important about the way he called him. Levi at the tax booth, he's called. Jesus calls him. I want to say to each of you, to of each of us, God has called you to do something. There's, there's a that which he got hold of you for. You're not functional. You're dearly loved. And Jesus gathers his disciples into destiny, into the creation of history, out of a sense of love. There's something that he's going to do with them. And I think that for us to understand fundamentally what we're about is family more than it is functional. There's, there's, a, there's a sense of uh, purpose that comes out of it, but the, the calling of God is to do with intimacy, affection, and love rather than to do with function, task, and um, product. I think that's really important. That we're not trying to produce something. We're not trying to set up something. We're responding to the call of someone who's loved us. Right, so what, why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm doing what I'm doing because someone, my Father in heaven, loved me and called me into working with him on something. It's not just function. It's, it's a, a love relationship. And I think that's right at the heart of when Jesus picks his disciples. He called them because he wanted them to be with him. They were in it together. It wasn't just a set of distinctives. It was being called up into seeing his purposes. The second thing, I think, is in terms of discipleship is that Jesus equipped them to serve his purposes. And I think there's some things we can learn about how we function in the future that are really important about that. They were in constant training throughout his whole life. That he never, they were never the completed article. There was never a time when they were more effective than he was. They were always in learning mode, receiving mode. They were always... Uh, learning from him, so are we. Uh, it's interesting, after the ascension, that there, there was a dip in performance, because they, you know, they hid in the room for fear of the Jews. They weren't, they weren't even then ready. There was a dip in performance. So he's equipping them constantly. And uh, I think we can see this in the, in the training of the 72, particularly, where this is the only time Jesus gave strategic direction and principles on how to do the job of reaching the world. Um, if, and in Mark 6, 7 to 12, just to make some points from this, because I think it, it applies to how we function in the future. It says, Jesus went among the villages, and verse 7, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house... Stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. 
So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And Herod heard of it, it says later. So what can we learn about that in terms of Jesus' equipping of his disciples that has, has impact on us now? Well, I think the first thing is Jesus started in the villages before he hit the cities. Now, to me, that implies it's okay to start in a hidden place and it's okay to start in obscurity. In actual fact, obscurity is a good thing to have first because you learn to work out what you're doing and then you can let, bring, let God bring fruitfulness to it, which then others will come and look at. Herod heard of it. Herod wasn't told about it before something happened. Uh, it, it, they didn't market themselves. They just did what Jesus told them in the villages before they got to the big cities. And I think there has been and can be in the Christian world a overemphasis on going for the big strategic hit uh, and, and almost punching above your weight before you've built anything to say in the first place. You've got to have something to say before you can say it. And the only way to do that is to do it in obscurity. Jesus, I think, intentionally sent them into the villages because he thought, well, if it goes a bit wrong there, at least we're not in Jerusalem, we can learn a bit more before we hit the big time. He, 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 it wasn't the villages were, a, were in irrelevance, but he knew that was, a, that, was a, that was the way he wanted to do it. And I think there's still a principle for us there. There's something about doing things hidden. It doesn't mean we hide or we're very sort of Uriah Heap and we talk ourselves down. That's not, I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying that when we do things... Let's, let's uh, do what we believe God's telling us to do, but not make a great fanfare about it too out of proportion to what we've actually done. Let's just do some stuff, let God bless it, and then you can take it onto a bigger stage. I think that's what he taught them to do. That's fine. So, and there's nothing wrong with that. So the second thing is he, he taught them to travel light. Don't get cluttered with things you don't need. So... You know, bag, coat, staff, tunic. I think in, in uh, the other uh, gospel it talks about it, it's even lost the staff. So, um, you know, we'll go with this one. So that a bit more. But the point he was saying was don't get cluttered. Don't take stuff that will slow you down on the journey. Now, to me, that fits in exactly with our axiom of maximum relationship, minimum organization. We want to keep traveling light. So in other words, we have the minimum we need in order to keep moving. If we start having headquarters and all kinds of infrastructure that slows us down, we won't be able to get to the next thing that Jesus wants us to do. So we've got to travel light. It doesn't mean you don't take anything, because that would have been foolish, but you just take what you need for the journey. So we've constantly got to be thinking to ourselves, what's the minimum we can get away with to keep this thing moving and keep it, keep it light, keep it tight, keep it, keep it working? Next thing I think that he taught them is to go in team, make it collaborative. He sent them out in twos. Now, I have to say, as I've reflected a little bit about church planting, uh, I mean, you can't always do it this way because, you know, God calls people to go different places and different things. So, you, you know, you get Kevin M. Riley in Gdansk, you get Roger and George going to Lille, you get uh, Phil and Emma in Stockholm, you get others, you know, where God calls people and then you kind of build around them. But I think there is something to be said in the future where possible, for as soon as possible, getting team to be on the ground right at the beginning. Because I think long periods of isolation are not helpful 
they're not always impossible to stop. So I'm not saying that guys who are pioneering for a long period of time on their own are wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the best model is to get plurality as quick as possible. So I think whenever we plan anything, we've got to take the shortest possible route to having team hitting something, even if it's not possible right at the beginning. I think Jesus could have sent them out one by one and gone to more villages, but he didn't. He sent them out two at a time. There was something about the dynamic of, of corporate that I think, you know, we just need to learn from it. If Jesus did it, I think there is something for us to learn from that. Next thing I think he taught them in terms of how to do the stuff was, uh, it says, look, you know, uh, um, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from it. If any place you will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. I think the point he's making there is wherever we work, we have to look for relational chemistry. That's the, that's the litmus test of is this going to be fruitful. So you look for a sense of God joining hearts. Now, remember the first point I made is we don't set up our camp according to our distinctives because the goal is to have all the church united and mature. That's the whole point of Ephesians 4. So we're not setting up because of what we're not or what we are. We're setting up because of prophetic destiny. God's called us together. I think you can see that principle in terms of Jesus didn't send them strategically to certain towns saying, well, whether they like you or not, stay there. He's actually saying, look, for this to work, there's got to be relational chemistry. You've got to be, you've got to be received by the people you're working with. You've got to have a sense of faith together. You've got to have a sense of, no, God's in this. God's doing something here. And now, what does that mean for the future? Well, let me be a little bit bold here. Again, Andrew's been a bit bold theologically. I'll be a bit bold practically. I think we might find ourselves working with people in the future that we might not have even thought possible to work with in the past. Why do I say that? Because I think we might find there's some relational chemistry that happens that goes beyond what we might initially look for as the things we would have tested, is this going to work or not? And I think sometimes if you've got relational chemistry, just like Priscilla and Aquila helped Apollos to grow in some things that he had, but he hadn't quite got them completely sorted out. Because there was relational chemistry between them, they could sort one another out on the journey. And I think sometimes we need to be much more looking for the heart connection first before we jump straight to, what do you think about this? What do you believe about that? I think we, we've just got to be a little bit um, more open. I'm talking in terms of apostolic advance here, looking for a man or woman of peace, someone whose heart's open to receive the message, to be teachable, to listen, and to, to, to help share in the mission that Jesus is doing. I'm just throwing that out there for you to think about, right? Because I think there's something we might find happening in the future. Look for relational chemistry. That really did seem to be something that Jesus emphasized. Then he said to them, make sure you preach and demonstrate the gospel. So it was the whole thing of king, the kingdom of God. Now this is interesting. They were all asked to preach and demonstrate the gospel. There was not, he didn't assign them into different giftings. So, well, okay, some of you are administrators, so we won't put you uh, into saying anything. You can just organize in the back room, and then others of you, you know, you've got your more evangelistic, so you can go in first, and you... 
He said, all of you, uh, you know, I, I sent them out two by two to, to demonstrate the kingdom of God, to preach it, to teach it, to, uh, they were driving out demons, they were praying for the sick. This is something I really feel uh, is something we've got we've to uh, grow in as a, as a, as a team. Um, let me ask you this question. How comfortable are you when you, if you are leading a ministry time uh, of Holy Spirit activity um, and there's no one else to help you? How comfortable do you feel if there's at the, end, at the end of a meeting or you're in a situation and it falls to you, you've now got to lead a ministry time just seeing what the Holy Spirit does. How comfortable do you feel? How relaxed do you feel? My guess is that because we've been in a movement that's been very strong on, on the Word, which is good, right? Uh, more people are comfortable in the Word than they are in ministering in the Spirit. Do you agree with that? Is that, is that a fair point? Tell me if you don't think it is. Could, that's just my observation. I don't think that's enough for where we're going. I think we've got to retain our strength in the Word, but we've got to have a much broader sense of we can all effectively minister in the Spirit much more confidently and much more, in much more of a relaxed way. Now, I don't think it's good to do a ministry time on your own anyway, because I think that, that changes the whole thing of team, and it's better to do it in team. But the point is, I mean, if I can just share sort of some things I've been learning, um, particularly to do with healing, which has been something where I've really wanted to pursue God a lot on that. And I said, no, I've got to really pursue this. What I've discovered is this. It wasn't until I'd seen so much failure and nothing happened so many times, and so you're then sort of slightly embarrassed in the ministry time trying to think of what to do next because nothing is actually happening, and you're thinking, well, all right, well, let's just sing another song. It's not, it wasn't until I've been through that so many times that I've actually got no fear and no pride left that actually then God started to do things when I then go into a ministry time because I'm not thinking about me. I'm not thinking about my reputation. I'm not thinking what will happen if nothing happens. That if you go into a ministry time and you think to yourself, what will happen if nothing happens, probably nothing will happen. Why? Because you're focused on you. Now, I only can share that because I really have been through, I, I mean, I've been through some excruciatingly embarrassing ministry times where, you, you know, you say, well, I, I believe there's someone here, da-da-da-da, nothing. Well, there's someone here, da-da-da-da, nothing. Let's just pray for the sick. Anybody healed? And it's like you can see the tumbleweed blowing through the, the auditorium. Anybody feel slightly better? <laughs> no, I mean, anyone, anyone worse? You know, I, I mean, really, I, I, I really have been through those tumbleweed sessions to the point now where, honestly, I, 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 I'm not worried anymore. I'm not worried anymore. And what I've, no, what I've noticed is this. The less I've been focused on me, the more I've started to see things happen. Um, now, why am I saying that? It's because I think Jesus sent them out to demonstrate the kingdom. He didn't just send them out to give information. It, we've got to talk it, demonstrate it, uh, perform it, live it. There's a, there's a, it's a bit like Goff was saying yesterday about gospelizing. It, it, it's much broader than just preaching. 
And it's not even just lots of different types of preaching. It's demonstrating the kingdom as well as proclaiming it. There's something we've all got to get really comfortable with. How comfortable are you at delivering people from demons? We should all be able to do that. And often the only way you learn how to do it is being in a room with someone who's demonized and there's no one else to deal with it, uh, which is how I learned. I, I really, I just thought, well, I don't know what to do, but I'll, I'll have a go. Uh, and I was, I was surprised something happened. And I thought, oh, it's not as difficult as I thought. And you, you just learn. Now, if we're serving churches, I will guarantee you every church you go into and you're serving, there will be people that need healing, there will be people that need deliverance, there will be people who need uh, laying on of hands, baptism of spirit, I'll use that phrase. Um, you know, there, there, will be, there will be people that need ministering in the spirit, not just information. So I suppose what I'm trying to just kind of provoke us a little bit at this stage in our development is let's not just become very good at information. Let's be men and women of the spirit who, who, who really learn how to feel comfortable in times of ministry. Now, some of us might think, oh, that's not really quite my thing. I'm not, not as good. I, well, do it in team then. It take, then you've got half the pressure. If you think, well, yeah, but I'm really, really nervous. Well, do it in threes then. You know, how many people you need to be in it? Just do, be in a setting. Or 72. Yeah, be in a setting <laughs> where, where you, you are stretching yourself beyond where you presently are. Because if we're translocal, apostolic team there must be signs following the preaching of the word. I often say now when I preach, I'm now going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and he'll confirm what I've preached. Something will happen in the spirit. I put myself on the line. Why? Because I, I honestly think if nothing happens, if there isn't some impartation of the spirit, not necessarily through me, but initiated by me, perhaps it'll happen through other people. If there's nothing happening, people have got every right to question, is what I'm saying authentic? I believe it that strongly. God authenticates it by signs following. Jesus could have set up any way of bringing the gospel he wanted. He chose to have words, works, and wonders. He chose the package to demonstrate the kingdom. So if he did it then with his disciples then, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect that we need to be functioning in the same way. And we need to be able ministers in the spirit, um, not just... Uh, good preachers or theologians or whatever. So you've got to we've got to learn to step out, and often when nothing happens, you just got to go again until you don't feel any fear or any pride anymore. Just keep doing it. Um, and linked to that, why this I think is important is in two Corinthians ten. Uh, there's a ver verses twelve to eighteen. I won't read all of that, but uh, Paul talks about the, 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 the sphere or the field assigned to him and his team, and he says um, in verse 13, we won't boast beyond limits, we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. Um, and then in verse 15 he says, we don't boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you. Now, to me, I think Paul's uh, sort of philosophy was, if I can raise the water level across the whole thing, then the whole thing will extend, rather than 
if I come to you and my water level's gone higher in terms of what I can do, uh, it'll have an effect. I don't think he thought like that. He, he's saying, now, my hope is, as your faith increases, the area of influence uh, enlarges so we can go beyond where you are to lands beyond you. Now, I think that is the whole thing of faith applies right across everything. It applies to everything we do for God. It's not just a signs and wonders thing. But it is included in that. It's being able to minister in the Spirit, in faith, being able to trust God for the unseen, trust, take steps of faith, be able to uh, go for things that, that humanly are not possible, be able to, as our faith for that grows, then the whole thing, the whole water level rises. So I guess what I'm trying to say is we don't want superstars here. We want everyone to be able to minister in the Spirit. Yeah? And so as that water level rises in the churches, we're more likely to have a, a, a sphere, a field that extends far beyond where we presently are because the water level will rise, people will become able ministers of the new covenant and they'll be doing stuff without us even telling them to. It'll, be, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll go viral. That's what happens. It goes viral because the whole thing lifts rather than a few superstars. And I think that's really what Jesus was trying to do with the disciples. He was trying to get them all involved so the whole thing lifted rather than it just being about a few. Um, next thing, just to, I mean, we want to come back on some of this. We might be able to talk about it before uh, we have a meal. Just got a few more things to share. I think one thing, another thing we can see from Jesus' choice of, of choosing just 12 disciples or 3 or 72 or whatever is he made a choice intentionally to have a few in order to reach the many. It seems to me that Jesus dreamed big but built small. Now, I think you can learn a lot from that. Um, it wasn't that he uh, reluctantly only had a few people. He chose to have who he had. And I remember one of the things that uh, uh, Ken McGreevy, um, before he passed away, when I met with him and he brought a prophecy to me about what was going to happen amongst us in the future, which was quite an extraordinary word he brought to me. But he said... Uh, he said to me, you've got to decide who you can receive. And I thought that was quite a, that felt quite a strange thing for him to say. And I thought, well, that's a bit, isn't that a bit, you know, uh, doesn't sound very inclusive. Uh, but he said to me, no, you've got to decide who you can receive and don't be governed by opportunity or need, but rather find those who you can work with who enhance even your well-being. And I thought, well, this is really sounding good. But it goes back to this whole thing of this man of peace, doesn't it? Finding relational chemistry, finding people who you just click with. You think, no, I, I think this isn't going to be hard work. This is, there's something in God happening here. Um, and I think Jesus chose a small number in order to invest in them so that he could reach the many in the long time. I just find, humanly speaking, if I can just, just as a human being, if you have m much more than, I don't know, a dozen or so people that you're really building deeply with, you get peopled out. Uh, and you can't give yourself as deeply to everybody as you'd like to be. And what happens in church leadership often is what you do is you shrink into superficiality because you're so exhausted with giving yourself to lots and lots of people and trying to maintain a standard of kind of giving yourself in the same way to everybody 
and you get peopled out. You think, I, I haven't got any more to give. So even though I love you and I'd like to get to know you, I've got no energy to. Now, I think we have to be really much more intentional than that. And there are certain people, Jesus poured himself into the three. He then had the 12. He then had the 72. There were different levels of, of expression of, of what he was trying to do with different groups of people. And I, I would encourage us to, in our circles of responsibility, don't get peopled out by trying to do too much too quickly. Just pick um, similar kind of circles to what is what Jesus did and, and, and build deeply with a few rather than trying to build deeply with many because you, you'll just get peopled out uh, and, and you'll be, end up just being superficial. I've, I've, I've sadly seen many church leaders who are very gifted pastorally never know where to put the ceiling of, where they, of how to relate to different people. And what happens is they do learn to be, become professionally superficial. So they, they appear to be giving themselves to everyone, but actually their hearts have become so closed because they're just exhausted with trying. Do you understand what I mean by that? So I, let's not do that. Let's try and really, really build deeply with a few. And there may be people on your radar um, who you think, well, you've got faith for to be training in whatever you're doing. You know, give yourself to a few. A few more things. Uh, Jesus, it seems to me, kept his disciples from getting distracted by things that were secondary. Um, squabbles about who was the greatest. Squabbles about the role of Israel and the kingdom of God in time. Squabbles about who was the baguette, bad egg of the bunch. All of those, he seemed to keep, keep focusing them back on the main and the plain, the things that he was trying to do. Now, what am I trying to say with that? Uh, well, whilst I, I, I think that the stuff Andrew's done today is superb, and, I want, and in a room like this, we need to have that stuff really raised so we really do some hard work on it and think, right, this is, we've got to get really sharp on this stuff because this is in the churches. We've got to understand all that. What I wouldn't want to do is that we pendulum swing so that we become just purely academically orientated in thinking about the latest stuff. And it gets worse and worse the more the internet just gets bigger and bigger and there's blogs from everywhere going on all the time. And you can end up trawling through blogs and stuff and books. And actually, you've not actually done any gospelizing, to use that word. You've not done anything. You've just read about what you should or shouldn't do. I think, no, there is a place for a plumb line of doctrine, and that's why we brought Andrew in today. It's a place for putting the plumb lines at right, let's make sure we keep, we just put it, you know, you know, guard, guard the gospel, watch your life and doctrine closely. Those are things we don't let go of. That's always got to be important. I think Jesus kept his disciples from getting so focused on the latest thing that was, you know, what about the kingdom? When are you coming back? What's that? He's, no, it's not for you to know that. It's not for you to know that. I mean, that's not a very good ex uh, eschatological explanation for, you know, when will these things be? You don't need to know. I mean, he just wanted to get them down to the main and the plain. No, focus on this. Focus on this. Don't leave Jerusalem until. And then, you know, this is what you're to do. I don't, I don't want us to become professional um, assessors of whether something is... Uh, healthy or not. I want us to build something healthy. Do you understand what I mean? It, 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 we've got to just do something. Let's, yeah. d let's do it. 
and then we'll sort it out on the journey, all right? If it gets a bit squiffy, well, you sort it out. It's easier to adjust a wall when you've built a wall rather than talk about what a wall should look like. So let's, let's not get so... Uh, don't waste time on the internet too much reading stuff that isn't helpful. Okay, if you're a teacher and you're doing training stuff, then yes, obviously you've got to research your stuff. But there's a, there's a, there's a balance. Um, there's a balance to keep to the main and the plain. Just keep to the stuff. Um, next thing was, I think Jesus kept them moving. He was always saying, no, come on, we've got to keep moving, we've got to keep moving. Um, he was always pressing them into new ground beyond their capacity and their present structures. Uh, and if apostolic ministry means anything, I honestly think one of the things it does is it, w it doesn't stand still. It, it will constantly, apostolic momentum will always break through the capacity of the present structures. It, it, as one door, as you go through one door, nine more will be in front of you. That's, that's the way it is, and it, and it will always be like that. There's constantly new ground to take, there's constantly new doors opening, and we will never have it neat and tidy. If you like neat and tidy, join a denomination, because apostolic ministry is never neat and tidy. I like neat and tidy. As a person, I like things organized, straight lines. I like dots and <coughs> dots, uh, dotting I's and crossing T's. I've had to just completely have a big paradigm shift in the way I think, live, expect, work, because God is not tidy. He is not tidy. He, he is on the move. We have to keep on the move. Jesus kept them moving. He, he kept them moving. Now, that doesn't mean we're uh, workaholics because they worked from rest. They were working from rest. But he was always moving them on to the next thing. They'd never finished. A um, couple of things. They had a, each of them had a specific part to play. Um, I love the interaction of Jesus with Peter. You know, Peter, do you love me? You know, this is a really personal, intimate thing. You know, do you love me? Three times, you know, do you love me? Feed my sheep. You know, he's kind of, he's kind of a, he really knew Peter well, so he could, he could, he could speak to him really closely and personally in a way that only Peter would really understand and respond to. And I just want to encourage you that God does treat each one of us like that. He, he knows you and he knows me. He knows how to talk to you. He knows how to get your attention. He knows where your vulnerabilities are. He knows how to get the best out of you. He knows the things that trouble you. He knows the things that concern you. He knows the, the things that you dream about in terms of aspirations. And, and Jesus is so uh, wonderful at speaking right into the heart of who each one of us is because he loves us, he knows us, and he wants to get the best out of us. So he, he addresses Peter pastorally, do you love me? He addresses an issue of intimacy before he turns it onto a, 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 a calling, feed my sheep. There's, there's always got to be that intimate personal relationship with the Lord that leads on to serving him. He, he didn't just say feed my sheep. He, he drew out the, 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 he wanted to focus in on the love relationship. That's really important. Each of us should be thinking, I want to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Now, there are mysteries, there are things we don't understand. I often think about some of the disciples in the early church. You think, well, why were Peter, James, and John 
the only ones at the Transfiguration. Why weren't they all there? That would have been a great training opportunity. Well, there was only three of them. What about the others? If you'd have been the others, one of the others, and they'd have come back and told you what had happened, how would you have felt? Well, I wasn't included. Why wasn't I invited? I don't know. Why was Nathaniel prophetically ministered to at the beginning of his calling and some of the others weren't? Why were some called before others? Later on in Acts, why was Stephen cut down so young? Why did Peter and Paul have different callings? Why did they fall out over John Mark? Now, I've learnt, I've been doing this long enough to think there's too many mysteries in the whole thing for me to try and sort out. So I've kind of thought to myself, Psalms where it says, I've learnt to still and quieten my soul like a weaned child and not concern myself with things too great for me. I will just do what the Lord tells me to do and leave the mysteries with him. I need to just let him speak to me about what he wants from me, let him love me, and let my response to him be one of obedience and trust, even if I don't understand everything else going on. And I would suggest that for each of us in the room, there is something about stilling your soul, responding personally to what the Lord's saying to you as part of the bigger picture, and not worrying too much about what's going on around you and all the mysteries and the questions and the things that haven't quite worked out, and you don't quite understand why this or why that. Because the see, thing is, Jesus never promised any of his disciples a smooth ride. And he set very demanding standards. I mean, you know, they're only asking him a question, and he says, you know, eat my flesh. It's not very nice. Uh, he says to Peter, you know, Satan's desire to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you. There's, there's, there, he's asking for some grit from his disciples. I remember at the beginning of the year when I had some time in January just to pray and wait on the Lord. I felt so clearly uh, one morning the Lord said to me, you've got to find your sea legs. I thought, what do you mean by that? And uh, I thought, just take me in Revelation where it says, when the new heavens and the new earth come, there will be no more sea. Uh, and I thought, well, I like the sea. I live near the sea. It doesn't sound much like heaven to me. But what he was actually saying was, it's not particularly physical thing, it's, it's a metaphor. The sea in Revelation is talking figuratively about the world. It's talking about turmoil, constant change, upheaval, in, un, instability, things always changing. And I felt he say to me, you know, in this world, you've got to find your sea legs. And brothers and sisters, when we, when we start to push out into new church plants, new nations, new kingdom of God exploits, new things that will take us into... Uh, things we've not done before, we have to find our sea legs. And what I mean by that is there will be demands, pressures, <coughs> challenges that, that the boat will start rocking. And if you haven't learned to walk on the deck without constantly throwing up over the side, it's going to be an unpleasant journey. You have to find your sea legs. It's like in the Bible where it says, rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. Now, if, only, if one is happening at a time, that's all right. You can rejoice, right? We'll rejoice. That's a good thing to rejoice. Then next week, well, there's something to weep over. Yeah, well, we'll weep with you. We'll console with you. What do you do if it's all happening at once? Y your emotions are kind of torn. And I would imagine for many of us in the future, perhaps some of you start kind of planting lots of churches or you're serving lots of churches, and you've got crisis in one church and great advance in the other, all happening at the same weekend. You have to find your sea legs. You've got to be able to walk through that somehow with the peace of God in the midst of turmoil. Jesus did. Jesus did. And I think he challenged his disciples to take my yoke upon you, learn from me. You know, I only do what I see the Father doing. 
there, there's something about his way of ministering that he tried to catch his disciples up into where they, they were able to leave mystery with the Lord but not let, not let challenging things wobble their confidence um, too much. So, just a few more uh, thoughts just as we, uh, for, for where we're, we're at at the, at the moment. Um, if there's one thing I think the Lord would want us to do, it's to understand that, as, as Colin brought that picture earlier this morning, which I thought was so helpful, about a launch pad, uh, we're, we're not trying to build something that's going to remain static. Uh, I, my, my dream would be that we would be launching from our launch pad many apostolic spheres, uh, many, many sons and daughters into, into different translocal ministries, that we are, we are a birthing pool, if you want to use another metaphor, for many things in the future we are not a nursery where people drop the kids off and then go shopping. Uh, we're, we're creating things to nurture and release. Now that does require a philosophy that right at the beginning pays the price that it might well be that some of what we birth will go off and do its own thing and won't even say thank you. Have to take it. Some of what we birth will go on and eclipse anything that any of us have ever done in this room. Now, I think Jesus prepared his disciples not to keep them less than him, because he even said to them, you know, it's good for you that I go away because you'll do even greater things. He wasn't trying to train them to a certain level and leave them kind of dependent. No, he wanted, he, he wanted to put everything into them so that when he wasn't there, they could actually do even greater things. They, they, they would keep doing the works that he'd been doing. There was a continuity. The values were the same. What I've been doing, you'll be doing, and even greater. And I think right at the beginning, just in these first few years, and, and I know that in lots of contexts I'm laboring this point again and again and again, but that's because I want to get it in now so that we really know that's what we're here for. We are here for the benefit of training, uh, recruiting, training and releasing, not for building some sort of empire. And I think Jesus can teach us a lot about how he got hold of the disciples, how he invested in them, the kind of dynamics that were going on there. I love the joy of seeing someone who, or something that we've invested in, going on to maturity and being able to stand on its own two feet rather than being constantly dependent. I love that. I love, the, I love the, the, the joy of being involved in something where you think, now that's now flying. It doesn't actually need me anymore because it's got its own, it's got its own life. It's got its own momentum. And I think that's really the heart that we see with Jesus for his disciples. He wanted to just keep investing in them. And I think we can learn some lessons from that. Uh, and, yeah, so let's just pray together. And I'm just going to give us some opportunity just to... Let the Lord um, just perhaps speak to us. For Thank you. wanted to add a couple of things. Um, on the whole ministry side of things, one of the things I've found that when we go into the pubs, you know, obviously that's one of the scariest places to minister um, because it's like <laughs> you get it wrong, you could get a slap. Um, and I, I've just found that actually one of the best things is actually, you know, the Bible says faith comes from hearing the word. And it's just like going in teams of two or three 
And what we've done as a team, we go around the pub and we just say, okay, what you, God, what are you doing here? And then we come back and confer notes. And you will be absolutely astounded how many times we've all got the same thing about the same people in the same place. And it's just like, and actually that gives us our framework for that healing ministry time or whatever God wants to do there. And um, when uh, Mike said about, you know, ministry in teams, that just really resonated with me because it's like, you know, the Bible says we see in part and we know in part. Yeah. Well, I, I may see a part and Roger may see another part and Mike may see another part. But so often that becomes almost like the 100%. Because you actually weigh it up between you, and then you can start ministering. And, and I just, when Mike said that, I just thought, God, if you guys would actually start ministering like this, in teams, in your churches, you're just, the accuracy would go up, and your faith would go up when you get the accuracy between you, and you go, yeah, I just believe Roger's doing this. And you'll go, yeah, that's exactly what I felt. That's what I felt. And then you can go, that's what God's saying. And suddenly the faith is there between you. And you can go up, Roger, this is what God says. And suddenly that, you know, that just, I just wanted to share that with you guys. Because I just really think that if you start moving like that in your old churches, you'll see your faith rise. Because you'll just have that conviction, that conviction that this is the right thing. Um, I wasn't going to share this, but I will share this because I just had it come to my mind. Now, um, a couple of years ago, I had a dream the night before I went on a ministry trip. And um, in this dream, I saw this guy in this cafe. And, um, and as I was looking at him in this, this dream, God said to me, his wife died last year. And I was just like, and then that was the end of the dream. And I was just like, hmm, interesting. Went on the ministry trip. And I got to the church with a team, and the doors were all locked. We were too early. So we were like, what are we going to do? We've got like an hour to spare sort of thing. And we saw a cafe over the other side of the room, in the other side of the road, rather. And we were like, oh, let's go for a coffee. So I was like, didn't even think anything. We went into the cafe. And as I walked into the cafe, there in this, on this table was this guy I dreamt about the night before. And the faith in me was just absolutely right up here. And, you know, there was no hesitation in my thoughts or thinking. There was no apologetics about the way I approached him or anything. I just knew I had a word for that guy. So I went up to him, and I just literally went, and there was no introductions or anything. I just said, your wife died last year. And he just went, whoa, sort of thing. And I just said, and God wants to help you in the pain. If you'd ask him, he'll come. And he went, yeah, that's right. My wife did die last year. And he was just like, you know, was that me? Absolutely not. But that word that I had in the dream that night before gave me the faith just to move in that, that authority and that power. And that's exactly what we're hearing about, we're talking about here. If you have that conviction between you all that this is what God's doing, God will move in power. And you just need to just do whatever you hear him saying. Just perhaps uh, just a way of prophetically demonstrating that. Just, just get into twos and threes, just hold hands. I just think it's just a holding of hands. I just want to symbolize just a sense of it can be four or three. I don't mind. Just, let's just kind of just begin to pray that God will create that kind of dynamic among us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Microphone. <laughs>